Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru, the podcast for discerning seekers where we have all of the community and none of the cult. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. Free Your Inner Guru is a deep dive into personal growth, spirituality, self-help, psychology, all the things you need to connect with your inner wisdom so you can become the leader you want to see in the world. Our guest this episode is Dr. Yanya Lalich. Yanya is an expert in cult dynamics and indoctrination. So counter to the usual intro, today we have a lot of cult on the podcast, but we're still staying away from cult dynamics. If you listened to the last episode with Ada Piaderico, you heard me speak a little about the inquiry I've been making into my resistance to all things cult. And frankly, it was holding me back from understanding a number of aspects of my past experience. Before releasing this episode, I wrote an article about the origin story of Free Your Inner Guru. So if you're new to the show and there's gaps that need to be filled in, you'll find a link to it in the show notes. Our guest, Dr. Yanya Lalich, is the author of Take Back Your Life, Recovering from Cults and Abusive Relationships. Yanya is a researcher, author, and educator, specializing in cults and extremist groups, with a particular focus on charismatic relationships, political and other social movements, ideology and social control, and issues of gender and sexuality. She is Professor Emerita of Sociology at California State University, Chico. Take Back Your Life is the number one book used by former cult members and their friends and families to better understand cult experiences and their consequences. It's been recently released as an audiobook. I first became aware of Yanya early 2020 on the small screen. She was the cult expert in an episode of William Shatner's The Unexplained on History Channel, which I participated in. Listen to this episode to learn how that went. Throughout the pandemic, I've been really challenged by the convergence of a large number of wellness influencer and spiritual leaders with anti-vaccination campaigns and conspiracy thinking. I want to share some of the resources that I have found helpful, including Take Back Your Life. There have been two podcasts that have been particularly helpful in sorting through reams of information, providing research and sometimes entertainment for me while I took my time navigating through. I mentioned one of them in this conversation with Yanya, Conspirituality with Matthew Remsky, Derek Barris, and Julian Walker. The other is called A Little Bit Culty, hosted by Sarah Edmondson and Nippy Ames, two former members of Nexium, a self-help-based cult that is the subject of the documentary series The Vow, and another one called Seduced. The episode of The Unexplained that Yanya and I are both in is called Deadly Cults, and it aired late February 2020. It was the first time I ever heard of Nexium. My good friend and friend of this podcast, Julie Min, kept prodding me to watch The Vow. I couldn't at first because, let's just say, I had had my 2020 fill after being in Wondry's podcast, Guru, The Dark Side of Enlightenment. Then... Person after person after person kept telling me I needed to watch The Vow. I finally relented this past February and ended up doing what we do when we watch these things. I googled Sarah Edmondson to find out that she and her husband Nippy Ames were starting a podcast called A Little Bit Culty. Guess who was one of their first guests? A cult expert named Yanya Lalich. 
So it would seem that all culty roads lead to the preeminent expert in the field of cult dynamics and indoctrination. Before we dive in, a heads up about the show notes for this episode, they are extensive to make it easy if you know someone who would benefit from listening. And I've included a detailed summary and links to everything that is spoken about. Since we recorded, I participated in a four-week psychoeducation workshop led by Yanya and two other experts, Beth Matineer, LPC, and Sally Martin, LCSW. It was a positive experience in every way. In fact, I'm coming to understand that some of the best human beings I've had the privilege to meet are former cult members. The dates of the next round of the workshops are not yet available, but I will share them on the Free Your Inner Guru email newsletter, which you can sign up to receive. Okay, that's everything. You know what to do if this episode has value for you. Share and review. Here we go. I give you Dr. Yanya Lalich, when self-help turns cult. Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru, Yanya. It's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, thanks, Laura. I'm really glad to be here. Looking forward to it. I feel like we have so much to talk about, including how our paths collided on the small screen before we got into touch recently. Before we do that, in the introduction, I've explained that you're a professor emerita of sociology at California State University, Chico, and your body of work and your life's work is raising awareness and educating around cults. Yes. And you didn't end up in that field just out of pure book interest. I did not. (laughs) Could you, I'm sure you've had to do this a number of times, but could you give a bit of backstory, explains how you eventually went to school and then became an authority in in the world of, of cult and cult dynamics? Sure. I was in a cult myself in the 70s and 80s. It was a left-wing political cult, and I was 30 when I joined, so I had already been to university and had lived in Europe for a number of years. I wasn't like a naive kid, and I thought it was time to put my money where my mouth was and do something good for society, and and this organization professed to want to bring about change and fight racism and sexism and classism, et cetera, et cetera, and eventually have a political revolution. Obviously, I didn't really know what I was getting into at the time, which is common for most people who join cults, and it was a very very difficult, constrained, harsh life. We spent a great deal of time sitting around and criticizing each other and just tearing each other apart. I was always in high leadership. And so I was one of the people who tore people apart (laughs) and led a lot of the classes to, quote, brainwash them. And as we called it, remold them into fighting cadre. So when I got out, and that's a whole other story, but anyway, the whole group imploded and I got out after 10 and a half years. So I was 41 years old and I went to New York and I was a mess. I had a job, but I would come home every night and drink and cry and try to write my story. And I was a mess. And I eventually, luckily got into therapy with a fantastic therapist in New York City who knew about cult after effects. And always there was something in me that wanted to go to grad school and really study this phenomenon. 
it took me actually about 10 years to make that decision and feel like I really could Mm. do it. And so I went through my sort of recovery and moved back to California. And I already was researching and writing and attending conferences and speaking and doing some media. I, I think I had written two or three books before I even went to grad school. And anyway, then I got into grad school. I did a multidisciplinary degree uh, with an emphasis in sociology. And my dissertation, as it turned out, which wasn't what I expected, but was a comparative analysis of the cult that I was in and the Heaven's Gate cult, which your listeners might remember was the cult where people did a collective suicide in a house north of San Diego. And I knew a lot about the cult and had been working with families. And it just happened while I was in grad Mm -hmm. school. And my advisor said, this is what you're doing your dissertation on. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) anyway, that that study has been published in user-friendly form as my book, Bounded Choice, if people are interested. So then I started teaching at Chico State. And while I was teaching, of course, I had a very heavy teaching load, which the state universities are known for. So I couldn't do as much work anymore with families or with former members. Before that, I had been leading support groups. I continued with my research, of course, and used my sabbaticals for that and things like that. And then I retired, I guess it's about three years ago now, or maybe even Mm. four years ago. And that's what the emerita means in in front of my name. It means that I have retired with honor. Emerita or emeritus is not something every retiree gets. Your department has to vote on whether they give you that title. So So it's an honor that's bestowed upon you. Yes. And I was very grateful to receive that and proud. So since I've retired, I've probably been busier than ever. I've been writing and doing more research and working with a lot of people, doing a lot of media, especially last year during COVID and still running recovery education groups and whatever I can, again, as you said, just to get the word out and try to educate the public in particular because there's so much stigma attached to having been a cult member. Yeah. Oh, and I feel that. And I want to bring into the room, so to speak, how, how we met on TV prior to COVID was when that episode of the unexplained was recorded. It was one of my last trips. So I remember it well for many reasons, but I guess what I want to ask, just while you've brought us up to present time, what's it been like for for you, given the political landscape and the polarizing groups and factions and this, it's almost like the mainstreaming of very fixed thinking and beliefs. Yes, absolutely. Which are one of the things that's very present in, in cults. There might be another term for that. But what was that like for you watching that unfold in real time all these years later? Yeah, it's been really interesting because it's definitely been a new phenomenon for those of us in this field. We we were starting to see cults on a national scale having a national influence, which cults pretty much until now have been considered as fringe groups. And certainly the ones on the far right have always been considered fringe groups. But with the polarization that came with, not everyone may agree with me, but came with our former president, the society got very polarized. And people took advantage of that to recruit people into their 
whatever it was they were preaching or offering. And certainly the, I'm sorry, certainly the internet had a huge impact on that, Mm -hmm. which is also new, the growth of cults on the internet over the last, I'd say, decade, but nothing on this scale. So it has been extremely interesting to observe and also troubling because there are so many people who got caught up in that, who still are caught up in that. There's so many families and friendships that have been shattered or harmed or people who are now disconnected from each other because they don't know how to talk to each other. And so that is a lot. What I've been doing more recently is trying to um, help people figure out ways to communicate with their loved one or friend who may have gone down one of those rabbit holes. This feels like a good time to to bring my story and our point of intersection into the conversation. If it's a first time episode, somebody listening might not be aware, but I was involved in an event in 2009 at a retreat with James Arthur Ray, who was a leader in the self-help world who had achieved a certain amount of fame. And there's a whole that huge story behind that. But where we collided was because at that retreat, there was a sweat lodge and three people lost their lives that day. And from day one, the media treated us and the people, anyone who was there or associated and James Ray as a cult and cult leader, which there's lots to be said about that, including how that amplified a lot of the pain and the trauma and the shame and everything else. And the every all so many of the optics were there. It's a new conversation for me to be willing to look at cult dynamics and self-help. I'm not particularly uncomfortable right now speaking with you, but it is new territory that is is yeah. uncomfortable. Yes. So Every now and again, I get a phone call or an email or a contact for somebody who's making a movie or a television show, and I try to be discerning with what I say yes to, because I think it's a story that's important to keep, even though it happened just prior to the internet. Certainly, there was stuff happening on the internet, but in 2009, 2010, Facebook, Instagram, they just weren't what they are today. So it, it can go off to the fringes. And my one of my many opinions is that leaving it out on the fringes makes it very easy for something as dangerous as that to be swept under the carpet for any number of reasons and the industry is not regulated. So that's my, my compass. If I think the project will advance that conversation, I participate. I said yes to the History Channel, William Shatner, The Unexplained having many, many conversations about what the narrative on the episode was going to be. And then much to my horror, saw (laughs) (laughs) us dropped right in between Nexium, which I'd never heard of before, Mm. and David Koresh, Mm -hmm. which David Koresh is the the leader of, can't remember the, the, the group name, Branch Davidians, Davidians, of course, you're going to know that name, Um, (laughs) the Branch Davidians. And I think many of us will know the context in terms of the siege at Waco, where Mm -hmm. they lost their lives. 
So that is quite a, um, you know, to, to think about one on one side of, of me and, and Jenny Brown and James Ray and one on the other. It's discombobulating to think about. And I saw you and my reaction was, well, who is this woman? Because the way you were edited in there, very, you know, not not the smiling, laughing <laughs> Yanya that I'm speaking to right now. It's like, boom, this cult that, this is, and who even knows the context now that you see what editing looks like. But it was part of almost my outrage at, at how it had turned out. But then more recently, when I've been writing my memoir and reading my journals, going back to 2007, 2008, 2009, and looking at things in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, let's just say that I've become willing to not be triggered by it anymore and actually look at it. Mm -hmm. Like I can't do the whole triggered thing one more time. I'm sure it shaves time <laughs> off my life every single freaking time. I, you know, end up at odds with this. And so what I'm coming to understand is that all the people who want to make the shows and the cult experts who have something to say about it, they're not trying to necessarily trap me into anything <laughs> that for the most part, they're wanting to do at least what they think good work is. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not including you in the they, it's just the media is really problematic. Yes. yes. They function under the sort of sex cells, gory stories cell. And so even those who have good intentions, and I think more recently, there, there have been many who have had good intentions and have actually succeeded to some extent with their documentaries or whatever. But yeah, it's very tricky with the media. I have experienced similar things to you where afterwards I was like, oh no, that's what they did with the hours I spent with them, <laughs> you know. Sharing um, the lessons and the insights right. and what right. might actually help people. Exactly. And mm -hmm. you don't get paid for any of that. I, I think people probably think you do, but you don't. Mm -hmm. And it's out of the goodness of your heart and the giving away of your time. And you hope that they'll do a good job and do something educational and not sensational. Yeah. So cautionary tale for anyone who's getting out there to tell their story. For, exactly. for, but I think one of the things to acknowledge out of it, that's a, exactly why this podcast exists, is because this is a way for me to have voice and not be spliced together by someone else right. and have that conversation. So given this incredible opportunity to pick your brain, I thought what we could do is look at some, if we were to, to draw a Venn diagram with an overlap between cult and cult dynamics and the self-help world, somehow I'd like to get at some of the things that would fall in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. And the obvious place to me to start, and then I want to hand it over to you, is the presence of and the rise of the charismatic leader. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think uh, so many of these programs, these self-help training programs, leadership programs, they come under various guises, and they've definitely mainstreamed over the last few decades. When they first started, we called them large group awareness training, LGATs. Mm -hmm. 
And there's plenty of research on LGATs. And my colleague, Margaret Singer, who I worked with for many years, the clinical psychologist, who was the preeminent cult expert for many years, she's probably the first one who identified how these groups use the very same techniques as cults. And they may not all be cults, but they're using the same types of mechanisms of influence and control, these social psychological pressures to get people to comply and go along with whatever it is they're doing. And so the the standing up and witnessing in front of people, sharing your story and everybody claps or whatever, and being called from the guy up on the stage who presents himself as the only one who can do this for you, even though everybody's doing firewalking now and everybody's breaking the boards and these sort of typical gimmicks they use to to try to... uh, convince people that something wonderful is really happening and they're really having these breakthroughs. It's really quite dangerous because what they're doing is they are basically mucking with people's minds and they're not licensed in any way as mental health professionals to be able to do that. When you go to your therapist, you might cry and have a very intense experience and have some kind of breakthrough, but presumably your therapist is qualified to take you through that process and guide you through it in a positive way, not in an an exploitative or self-destructive way. And so these new age programs, which I call them, or self-help programs, tend to take people apart with the goal of getting you to come back for more and getting Mm -hmm. you to recruit all your friends. And so it's all about the leader of it and the money they're getting and the fame and the big personality. And so they're really, even if they're not a cult per se, they are definitely using the same types of tactics. Some of them are cults within the upper ranks where the business exists and there's people on staff and things like that. Most of those do operate as cults around the leader. What would that look like as far as if somebody was in that that environment and i think where where i get tripped up or stuck on is but or and it really helped me so i know firsthand and and i've heard um i've heard actually on a, there's a podcast that's been very helpful to me over the course of the last year called conspirituality mm-hmm. and the reason why i'm saying that it's helpful it, it was very helpful to me because I was really taken aback by watching people that I knew and elements of the wellness and self-help world bow around into conspiracy thinking and having quite a lot of the MO in common. And I don't think we need to get into this conversation right now. I'm, in, I'm inviting one of the guys on from, from Conspirituality to talk about it. But this, the, this, this, I got mine. I was having benefit. I'm here. I'm growing my business. This is all so I can live my best life and and be my best me, which is an honest desire for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. If someone was in that situation and they were starting to engage and interact with this inner circle or hierarchy of the group, what would be some of the, the warning signs to look out for? What would that look like, this dangerous hierarchy? Well, certainly if there's a head person or a leader or a guru or whatever you want to call him, 
uh who expects to be listened to at all times, who expects to be praised and honored and never challenged. That's a red flag. Organizations, businesses uh, should be democratic or at least should be open and transparent. So if you have no clue what's happening with the money and no one's willing to tell you that, if you ask questions and your questions are turned back on you, if your time is completely controlled, at least when you're there at staff or whatever they may be calling it, if you have to do a lot of repetitive practices, which in most cases are meant to just destabilize you and shut down your critical thinking so that you just snap to these phrases, these common phrases, and you don't have to think for yourself. So it's, oh, I'm going to be me today. I'm going to do good today. I'm going to reach my goals today. And those kinds of controls. And also, if you're not getting paid or you're getting paid minimally, basically that's slave labor. It's against the labor law. So there are all kinds of transgressions that can occur in those environments. And Unfortunately, as you were saying in the beginning, most of this is not regulated. It's very popular because we tend to be a quick fix society. So we want to sign up for these things that are going to take us to the promised land, whatever it is, a better self, more money, a better business, a path to salvation. It can take any form. I think it's the most important thing, I think, is for people to slow down and not jump into things right away. I think when people are signing up for these things, if they're asked to sign a waiver where uh, they sign away their right to uh, take action if something negative happens to them, if you're asked to sign a waiver, that's probably a good reason why not to do something. Mm -hmm. Because what are the possibilities that could happen that they're having you sign a waiver for? Sometimes if you're in therapy, they make your therapist sign something that says, if it, and I'm paraphrasing this, but if this person cracks up or has a breakdown, it's my responsibility as their therapist to take care of it. It's not this organization's responsibility. So all these ways that they shirk their accountability and responsibility mm-hmm. are things to look out for. It's unfortunate because so much of this has crept into the business world and people are sent to these workshops or swing from tree branches or whatever it might be. And they're afraid to say no, because it might put their job at jeopardy, or it puts them in the out group at work. And so again, there's a pressure uh, to participate. And I just want to say something about Yacht Helped You. First of all, in most cults, there has to be something, at least on the surface, that appears good. Otherwise, why would anyone stay at all? So you have to think you're achieving something whether that's external or internal, but also the kind of highs that you get in these group contexts are not enduring and they're very fleeting. And they're brought about by what we call high arousal techniques, Mm -hmm. whether that's a type of meditation, sitting in a sweat lodge, listening to certain kinds of music, chanting, speaking in tongues, whatever it might be. That's, That's called high arousal. It gets you into an aroused state again, where you're not using your critical thinking and you're thinking something spectacular is happening because that's what they're telling you. It's what psychologists call the demand expectation. You go into something expecting that this is going to happen. So in a sense, you almost make it happen. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And unlike talk therapy, which can take time, 
But usually with talk therapy, the resolutions that happen or the awarenesses or the aha moments, the epiphanies are far more enduring than some high you feel with 500 people you've never seen before and will probably never see again. And it fades. And because it fades, you sign up to go back again to feel that high and feel good about it. That's one thing. The other thing is your business may have succeeded anyway without you having attended that workshop, right? You're the one who's making that happen, not this fake guru over here. So you have to give yourself credit for what you're doing, which is not what they want you to do. They want you to give the credit to the be all and end all leader. So those are just a few of my thoughts on that. I can, I can put a bit of that into context when I went on that journey. And I, say for, I think this is going to be a difficult conversation for some listeners to hear because they may be coaches or taking workshops or wondering, hey, Laura, you've been a coach for the last seven years and you're been doing some of this work. What the heck is going on? Is this an about face? And there's part of me that says, I don't know yet because I'm not completely around the, you want to talk about a pivot? It's a long, slow pivot. And I'm wanting to really stay true to the spirit of free your inner guru, which was to have a voice on some of these issues related to what happened in Sedona in 2009, because I was never satisfied after the documentary Enlighten Us, after the show I talked about, even the the Wondery Gurus. It's why I'm writing a memoir right now. But it's also been that act of writing memoir and looking back and seeing what's in my journals. When I was there, it was the Great Recession. I was consulting in the automotive industry. It was very seriously impacted. I took tools back and used them with my clients and that, that helped. And it's not to say that if it was all garbage, I wouldn't have been there. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have kept coming back. There's certainly incentives with the people that I met and the travel and that, and it's a life that I know that lifestyle. I, I miss it a lot these past, this past year, <laughs> but going back to what free your inner guru is about, it's about living guided by inner wisdom and not being subjugated to outer wisdom in a way that is healthy. So it makes sense to move the conversation beyond inspiration and intuition. You're not really free. And these are some of the confronting things that kept bonking me in the head as I was going through all of these secondary experiences, that if there is indoctrination has manipulation and tactics being used, then you might think that you're free. I certainly <laughs> thought I was. Mm-hmm. And that in itself is the opposite of critical thinking. Right. You mentioned self-fulfilling um, prophecy. I'd love to hit that on the head because I, I hardly ever share this anywhere, but I did a degree in psychology. And one of the chapters or sections of the book that I have written is about when I was in my first year of psychology, hearing about self-fulfilling prophecy and looking at some aspects of my home life and going, oh, that, that makes quite a lot of sense. My father struggled with depression. Mm-hmm. It made a very sweet and kind and loving man into somebody who was really hard to be with. Mm-hmm. 
And I looked at that and was like, yeah, that made sense to me. Self-fulfilling prophecy. And then I had this same thought the first time I saw The Secret and The Law of Attraction. That's a dressed up, well-marketed, self-fulfilling prophecy. A lot of what's out there from the remnants of the new age or the growth of this self-help industry is really common sense, pablum, benign phraseology. None of it is brilliant. None of it is a secret. These are just ordinary thoughts to guide someone through life that each of us could probably have written the secret. Whoever did it obviously made a fortune and Oprah helped with that. It was one of my beefs with Oprah and her love for new age gurus. But people really need to, I think, think more of themselves and less of this idea that they need someone to guide them, which doesn't mean people can't seek help or look to resources, but you don't want to give yourself away. You don't want to give away your autonomous thinking. You don't want to give away your decision-making power. And even though it may not seem like that, what happens in, in these organizations? Well, it feels, the problem is it feels like the opposite, doesn't it? Exactly. And, it's, and I call that the illusion of choice. What happens through the indoctrination process or through this, you know, what sometimes I call re-socialization, you're in a sense guided by the morality and the values of the leader, whoever's pontificating at you. And your free will, so to speak, gets altered by the will of the leader and the will of the group. So yes, it feels like you're making decisions, but those decisions are confined in that closed framework, in that single-mindedness that you spoke about at the beginning of this session. So in other words, if you're in it, you're what the outcomes are going to be based on the character and capabilities of the leader as a human being. Mm -hmm. And if nothing else, that's a full-on argument for knowing exactly who your leader's therapist is, who your leader's coach is, who you're like, like knowing that they're not off on their island of I'm the greatest. Knowing their background, knowing their criminal background, knowing credentials. Do they have real credentials or are they just making stuff up? Have they had things in the past? Have they changed their name? And how many times have they changed their name? Has the name of the organization changed once there was a scandal somewhere? It's easy today to really do that kind of research. There's so much on the internet. As much as the internet may have been used to recruit people, it's also there's also a wealth of information. Because people who've either been in cults or attended these groups and are critical, I would see as a requirement, if you're thinking about jumping into something, especially if it's going to take a lot of your money and a certain amount of your time, you want to know the history and you want to hear what people who've been there say. What, have, what do the critics say? And if they don't want you looking at that, then that's a sure sign of a lack of accountability. You mentioned the internet and I had this, it, the internet queued up as a question about how, like, I think we think of cults and this was certainly me. To me, a cult is some, it is a group that has a compound and people go off and, and live there. And yep. when you think of a lot of these defining stories, including the two that I ended up in the middle of on William Shatner's The Unexplained, there were compounds. People were leaving their physical areas and, and ending up in a place. Is the definition of a cult and 
or a high demand group or a high control group? Is it broader than that? Has the internet had a role in changing that? Cults have never required everybody be all in the same place or that there be a compound somewhere out in the desert or whatever. Most cults will have some kind of headquarters place that you may be encouraged to come to, to take courses or to live there. But a cult of any size is generally going to be spread around. They may have centers or whatever they want to call them in different parts of the country or the world. But everyone being all together really has not been a requirement. I, I, and I did always think that it took personal contact for someone to be recruited. When the internet stuff first happened, I would say, okay, people could get radicalized or interested in something over the internet, but then they have to go somewhere and meet someone. Even the terrorists had to do that. They had to go to Pakistan or wherever and get trained. But that seems, that is one thing that has changed. The internet groups that are growing have been able to build internet communities. So it's the same thing as having the physical contact, but it's the place where people can feel comfortable, feel safe, feed each other the conspiracy theories or whatever it might be. That has, in a sense, been a replacement in some cases for what was a physical presence or a physical space prior to this past decade. I've worked with families, I've worked with people who've been in these internet groups where there was no, literally no physical contact with anyone else in some cases where they never even saw the leader and yet they were true believers. What makes, I'm just having my own thoughts here about that. Is it the pervasiveness of the online world? Is it the fact that it's here in my computer and here in my hand on my phone or? Yes, I think that's it. We're living in the digital age, so to speak. We had the factory age and the technology age, and now it's the digital age. So everybody's got at least two, if not four devices, and they're looking at them all the time. And that's, I think, a lot of what happened during the pandemic when people were sheltered in, they spent more and more time on the internet. And that's how they found themselves going down these paths that are apparently orchestrated by algorithms, which I claim to know nothing about, <laughs> but apparently that's what works. And that's what sends people from thing to thing. And, and that's a lot of what happened in the past year. Yeah, I think the basic understanding of algorithm is just, it's something that's feeding you more of what it knows you're already interested right. in. Right. So something as benign as I haven't colored my hair since last July. And I spent a lot of time looking at other women from their 30s all the way on up, letting their gray go because the pandemic showed them what showed me, I'll, I'll stop talking in third person, showed me what was really there and that maybe I was going to an extraordinary amount of effort to create something to simulate, when, you know, maybe a tone or two off. But all of a sudden, all I see, all of my accounts everywhere, gray haired women, women growing in their hair. Yeah. <clears throat> right. It wouldn't matter what it was. I start looking around at photography sites, then right. I see photography. So it's working the exact same way in these cases. Given the proliferation, conspiracy thinking, it's extended out into public health with, with um, conspiracy around the vaccine. Something that I have experienced and thought is one of the the causes 
is that when people go on a journey to grow themselves, you're becoming more conscious. You're, you're becoming somehow more perceptive. You're becoming not like that average person. And somehow you now know more. Like there's this there's an seated arrogance or, and did you say elitism? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that? I think there's a certain elitism inherent in in all cultic groups, and so the, this we see this similar thing with this this way of seeking that that has manifested with the uh, wellness movement or the self help movement. When you're in a cult, you're told that you're this special group of people that you, you, you and only you who have made this commitment are going to reach whatever they're offering you, whatever the salvation is. And so it has two purposes. It makes you feel special and elite. And so who doesn't like that? It creates this us versus them mentality, which keeps you separate from the rest of society and therefore more controllable and more easily compliant. So it serves all these purposes. And I think the the kind of haughtiness almost that some people feel because they have done so many courses or feel so enlightened or have or are in the presence of some enlightened leader to me a lot of it speaks of white privilege to me actually although certainly people of color get involved in these movements as well i don't think to the same extent so yeah, yeah it's definitely an an, an elitist uh, approach and an elitist mindset well you know you speak to that and I, over the course of the years, and even I'm, I'm going through, I understand this is very common with people writing their memoir, kind of that, who the hell do I think I am thinking, <laughs> right. like who would ever want to read this crap, <laughs> right? but, but, but so there, there's that, but then I, I actually, part of the, the reckoning of the past many years, but it's been exacerbated this past year by, you know, I referred to it earlier in our conversation, this, the lifestyle associated with going, picking up and going off to often Southern California or to mm-hmm. Arizona, these warmer climbs, given I'm a Canadian, checking into a, a five-star hotel and spending day and night workshopping and introspecting. And, and you know what? I, I loved that because it allowed me the time to do that. In, in day-to-day life, it, I didn't even know to do that back then. I do it now of my own accord. But it's mind about sometimes the, the lack of empathy for survivors of a situation like ours. And, and I think in part, in large, large part, that's a lack of empathy for people who come out of cultic situations, which I want to talk about, but there is no denying the, the privilege. It's, re- it's only with means or people who are stretching with means. Right. And at least back then it was predominantly. Exactly. Yeah. The whole, the whole basis of the new age movement is this concept, we create our own reality, right? So right there, you're the center of everything. And it becomes a very selfish, self-centered way of being and way of thinking. And it's back in the day, it was what allowed people to, to say, if you were abused as a child, you made that happen. Oh, if you had AIDS, you made yourself get AIDS. Oh, you create your own reality. And it can be very unempathic, if that's a word. Shaming. 
shaming, very shaming, and a way to shirk responsibility for what's going on in society. And so it's a, it, it is truly a very selfish, self-centered approach. It started to feel like rather than it being it, that it's almost like a stage of development, like under so and there's a darker side to that at cause type thinking. It can be very empowering if you're hearing you create your own reality. It obviously it resonated first city during psych 100 with my not fully formed brain, but it helped. It brought some relief and some sense that maybe I can take some independent action here. Mm-hmm. And looking at it in that context, it feels like it should be a stage of development, not a way of life. A way of life, exactly. And the darker side of that, you know, beyond, you know, ultimate, certainly a, a real deep look at personal responsibility and even being at an event like Spiritual Warrior in 2009. And, and you've seen Enlighten Us, you, you know what happened there with me speaking up and, and not being heard. That's a, that's a huge conversation of where's the line of responsibility. Mm-hmm personal responsibility and this this at cause thinking that initially feels very empowering mm-hmm. can become very shaming yes absolutely with this area of study being very very active right now it may be that there's more people leaving or more people recognizing their situations mm-hmm. as a cult dynamic when someone is coming out, given we were just talking about shame and having these realizations about themselves and their dynamic, what can someone do to, to help themselves? And then as someone who might be receiving somebody out of one of those situations, a friend, a family member, uh, a colleague, how can we receive them better? Because I, I don't think that we know as a society, I certainly have experienced some aspect of that myself. People don't know what to say or do or think. So there's a lot of different issues there. <laughs> First of all, I think if you are a family member or friend of someone who's in a group, even if it may be distasteful to you, I think it's always important to be accepting of the person, unless they're picking up guns and going and killing people. But Uh, within reason, always leave the door open, never give up on the person, never cut them off. They may cut you off, but don't you cut them off. And always express to them in whatever way works that you are a safe haven for them if they ever decide to try something else. Being that safe haven means if they come to you and are leaving the group or have left the group, welcome them, don't humiliate them, don't say, see, I told you, don't when other people come around, don't introduce them as, oh, this is my friend who was just in a cult. Give them time and space to chill out. People need, one thing people need, especially if they had a long-term or an intense experience is to sleep. Let them sleep, let them rest, let them do what they want to do again within reason. Just listen and be there for the person. So that's one thing. For people leaving groups, it is in many ways one of the hardest things they'll ever do because you're giving up your whole worldview and it means starting over on some level. And it also means accepting 
that you were duped and nobody likes to think they were had. So I think that's a lot of the reason people, even if they leave, shy away from looking at it as some kind of cult or abusive experience, coercive experience, because they want to think, okay, that's over. I'm going to move on with life now. It's really important to find resources that can help, whether that's support groups, online research, finding other people who left your group that you can talk with, reading. Obviously, my book, Take Back Your Life, is enormously helpful to people. If you grew up in a group, I've written a book about that called Escaping Utopia. So I think self-education or what we call psychoeducation is really important to try to get a handle on what happened to you. Otherwise, it remains a mush in your brain and you will feel that shame or feel that guilt. And you'll wonder, should I, when I meet someone, should I tell them this happened to me? Or how do I explain getting a job? What, you know, how do I explain those years? There's all these questions that mm-hmm. come up. How do I get in? How do I learn to trust again? All of those things. So the more helpful resources on recovery that, that one can find, of which there are a number available now, I think that's important to do. And it's going to be tough. It does mean reevaluating what you believe in or what you want to believe in. It means looking at what were the good things maybe in that experience that you can keep and what are the things you want to throw away. And so it's often, again, depending on the length of time, it's usually a few years to sort all that out. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that's what you're doing every day, all day. But things will surface. There will be what we call triggers, just like you were triggered when you watched (laughs) The Unexplained, right? (laughs) Totally. And that's ultimately what drove me is thinking, that's no way to be, to have a desire to have a voice on a subject, but then go through that triggering experience on an ongoing basis. That's Mm -hmm. really no way to be. It's either, you know, pack it up or be willing to look at it. This is the thing I haven't been willing to look at. There's bound to be something here. Right. Just before we wrap, I've heard this in while doing my research. I certainly had experience with it myself. In 2009, I, I went to see a psychologist, which was a big move for me to see somebody from traditional mental health therapy mm-hmm. versus, mm-hmm. yeah, but it didn't go well. It was not the right person. And it didn't stopped me from continuing to find more. I guess what I'm trying to say is when people are coming out, what should we be looking for in a therapist? And I've got the sense that it's not just an experience of mine. No, it's a very common experience. And it's one of the things that's really troubled me over the years is the lack of understanding among helping professionals, therapists, social workers, whatever. It's almost, I'm not going to make a universal statement, but it's really important to try to find a therapist who has some understanding of post-cult after effects. And one of the things I'm hoping to do in the next phase of my retired life is to start workshops training therapists through giving CEUs and hopefully getting people to sign up for these courses. But if you get a copy of Take Back Your Life, uh, mm-hmm. which is my book, well, actually, one of my it's books. It's right here. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. If you get a copy of Thank that, you. there's actually a list in there of questions to ask a therapist and on your first interview. And I think people don't think about it that you're actually hiring that person 
to work with you. Um, you're paying them to do what you, hopefully what you, between the two of you, assess that you need. So it's perfectly legitimate to ask a shitload, pardon my French, of questions when you do the first interview with them. There's also a, another list in the book of how to evaluate your experience with a therapist afterwards to see if it was the right fit for you. So it is important to to try, and I know it's difficult because there aren't that many therapists who do have this knowledge. One thing you can always do is ask the therapist to get my book and read it. There's also a section in there by my therapist who helped me uh, talking about the things that are important for therapists to know. Otherwise, you can sign up with someone who can really delay your recovery Mm -hmm. and focus you on the wrong things. I thank you for being willing to speak to that in such a straightforward manner, because I think what happened for me is I felt like, again, there was something wrong with, with me or that the interest was actually more in the notoriety of the thing than actually finding out about me as a person. Exactly. And And that was not good. Right. From when I did the research for my book on children or individuals who grew up or were raised in cults, one person talked about, and she had been in the children of God, where eventually they were instructed to have sex with the children, having sex with children, and then adults having sex with children, including their own children, and then even trafficking children and the horrific abuse that went on in that group. The first time she went to a therapist, all the therapist wanted to hear about was all the sex. It was like, hello, (laughs) that's not what we're doing here. And it was just voyeuristic. And so I'm not surprised you had that kind of experience. And quite frankly, and we'll conclude on this, it put me off. It created some opinions that I have expressed on, you know, other platforms. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, it is comforting to know that the opinion based on that experience was valid, but it's sad to think about what it could have been like to end up with an appropriate therapist. Yeah. So thank you for that, for me, for and, anyone who's listening. And and I'll, I just want to add also that there are no gurus other than your inner guru. <laughs> and even some of the therapists who are in this field don't exactly have stellar reputations. So even if it's a well-known person or someone who came highly recommended, if your experience isn't what you expected or is hurtful, then don't stay. Remember, this is your recovery and you're trying to take care of you. Get out because otherwise it's more of the same. Yes, exactly. Oh my goodness. I wish we could do a part two and a part three. I want to thank you so much for coming on. I wish I had bumped into you a long, long time before we did. When I heard of this book, Take Back Your Life, I ordered it and I dove into the journal. I wanted to read to see what I saw before I got somebody else's voice in my head. Interesting. And what an incredible resource. And very accessible. I I devoured it. And it's now going to be available in audio format. It's done. It's being sent out right now to all the audio outlets. So for people who can't concentrate or have difficulty reading, that format will be available as well. The people listening now are people who prefer audio. So that is perfect. And 
I will put the the ebook and keep the notes updated and and the book into the show notes as well as links to your website, which is cultresearch.org. It's been a pleasure, Yanya. Thank you very much for your time and energy. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad we met. Me too. Yeah. Take good care. And thank you for being here. I know you've got a ton of choice in the podcast universe. If you found this conversation or other episodes of For Your Inner Guru to be valuable, I have a request. There's three things that help a podcast grow. The first is when you tell other podcast listeners about Free Your Inner Guru and spread the word. The second is when you subscribe on your podcast app or at freeyourinnerguru.com. And the third is when you leave a rating and a review. If you'd like to actively support the podcast, please visit freeyourinnerguru.com where you can shop the t-shirts, hoodies, and notebooks, become a supporting patron, and learn more about the leadership community. Until next time, I'm Laura Tucker signing off for Free Your Inner Guru.